Welcome to episode 543 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have longtime regular contributor, fiddle player, educator, and our resident historian, Surf William. And we delve into staying ideologically pure, directives from on high, bureaucracy, raging against the machine, compromise, the ills of our political system, not wanting revolution, the present-day Republican Party, ho-hum, reductionism, unions, and blue-collar folk, a grand, vivacious, compelling conversation with Surf William this go-round. We also have the beginning of a new series from our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise. The series is called Fairy Tales for Slightly Depressed Adults, and the first piece of the series is titled The Butcher's Wife. We also have an E.W. poem called October Sun, and all of this, of course, will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 543 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. Shall be in it. 
Surf William, is that you? Yes. <laughs> I'm always trying to figure out how to turn my speakers on. I'm like an old guy with technology. Hang on. You're not, you're not like an old guy with technology. <laughs> you actually are an old guy with technology. Great to every have time, you. Every time we do this, I I panic. And the, sky, the Skype icon comes up, and I totally panic. <laughs> That's good radio, you know? That's great radio. <laughs> I still don't know how to turn the speaker on. Speaker off. Make the speaker be on. <laughs> what do you think? You're Captain Kirk? You can just tell commands. See, camera? No, I don't want to do the camera. Well, you hear me. Oh, I... well, you know what? I'll just talk to you like it's a regular phone call, like the old days. Right. I mean, I hear you. You hear me, right? It's all yeah, good. Yeah, I guess that's the point, right? Yeah, that's the point. <laughs> yeah. So how you doing today? I am. Um, you just caught me right at the very end of the workday. I'm literally just finished class. Um, oh, I don't know, 10 minutes ago. Well, thanks. Thanks for taking some extra time in, in your day and, and talking with us here on Trooper well, Doors and Rock On Tours. I'm truly a blessing. You are a blessing. You are. <laughs> and for those who haven't experienced this blessing before, uh, let me tell you a little bit about Surf William. He's one of our longest contributors. I think uh, Almighty Todd and Bruno Milo have you beat by a little bit, uh, but you're up there. And uh, I'm so happy to say that he's a fiddle player. He's an educator, among other things, and our resident historian. We're talking with him from, I guess, your place of employ. Is it in Bucks County? No, no. It's in uh, Somerset County, New Jersey. Right. You live in Bucks County. Yeah. I don't want to get any more specific than that because they could they could trace this call and and all kinds of stuff could happen. You know, your groupies will be waiting for you at your 1985 Pinto, you know, when you go to the parking lot. <laughs> Well, either that or the school board will fire me, one or the other. Well, yeah, that too. That's true. <laughs> uh, but no, you talk about great stuff, and I think they'd be proud of you if they knew, actually. I don't uh, really keep any of my – like, my views aren't really secret. You know, they, the teachers get admonished all the time, like, don't don't express your opinions in front of your students. You know, the, 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 the directives that we get from on high are so incredibly absurd to me. And actually – if the goal here is to cultivate young members of our community to be to be active in civic matters and to be engaged in in the issues of the day so so as to con contribute positively to the discourse I don't understand these directives that public school teachers get all the time of, you know, you remain neutral, um, don't express an opinion. I, I don't I, I fully don't understand that. And that to me represents a certain philosophical political ideology no doubt no doubt about it and you know both of us have been around for a bit of time and and we both could have gone down the managerial road if we wanted to we have the skills to do that in terms of organizing and in terms of communication and the like but we haven't and i think it's because that mentality is not something as you said we philosophically subscribe to that mentality of over control over worry you know, uh, sort of like sucking the life out of things, basically. Yeah. You know, um, and it's terrible. That's but that kind of person, and not all managers are that way. But I would say a grand majority are, from my experience. And and it, uh, yeah, I, I don't. That that's the kind of mentality that's usually drawn to being a manager. It seems. Well, when you're in when you're in a bureaucracy, 
um, it's hard to remain philosophically and ideologically pure. When you're working in a large bureaucracy, that's really a political entity. I'm a public school teacher, so whether people like it or not, it's a political position. And it's hard to remain completely 100% true to all of your ideals and your beliefs. You do find yourself, you do find yourself uh, on occasion compromising. Um, you do find yourself sometimes making exceptions to, you know, the rules that you laid down for yourself in terms of, in terms of your, um, in terms of being true to yourself and your politics and your philosophy, you know, sometimes you sort of let things slide a little bit, or you sometimes even you go along with, with the whole bureaucratic flow, because sometimes we get tired and it's hard to rage against a machine all the time. And, you know, I find myself doing that too. And I even talk to my, you know, I have a teenage son as, as do you. And we, I find myself talking to my son sometimes he questions, he's a high school junior and he gets in trouble every now and then minor stuff. You know, he didn't, he didn't clean off his table at lunch or, um, he bought pizza one day and he didn't scan his card. And, and he said, you know, during the COVID, all the lunches were free. And the administration said to him, well, you still got to scan your card. We still want to know, you know, who's getting food, how much they're getting. It wasn't that big a deal. He had a problem with that. So he would disobey. And then I would get a call from an administrator. You know, Angelo had to do detention today because he didn't scan his card when he took his free piece of pizza. And Angelo would come back and say, this is absurd. All this food is free. Why do I have to scan? He, in other words, he, he could identify a sort of silly policy that he had to follow. And he was opposed to having to follow this policy. And I tried to explain to him, well, you know, your administrators in your school, they're really trying to do a good job. They're trying to create a safe environment for you. They do need to keep track of how much food goes out so they can determine, you know, what they have to order in the next month or the next year. I'm trying to justify it. Well, and that's all true. Actually. It is all true, but but I appreciate where he's coming from, and and he's a little bit more he you know compared to me he's actually a little more philosophically pure because he's willing to say no I reject these rules that seem arbitrary and capricious and I'm not going to follow them and I'm the one and I always thought I was a big rebel I'm the one talking to him and I can hear the words coming out of my mouth saying can't can't you just go along with it well, can't you just can't you just swipe your card can't you just can't you just do it and and. You find yourself in the, out out in the real world, oftentimes compromising. That's a little yeah. example, but it's a good one. It's in bigger ways, it's a good one. And and actually, he has the freedom and and sort of like the the privilege now to to question and to behave that way because he's taken care of to a great extent by other people, you know. Mm -hmm. But and and now you know you're not. You know, at one point you were being taken care of by other people, by your you know the elders in your in your life. Uh, but now you have to take care of other folks. You have to take care of yourself. You can't lose your job. You know, you, you, you can't. Right. You know, right. so you have to you have to be more cognizant of the reality of listening to the parameters set by those who are in charge. Or you're going to have to fight constantly. And, and sometimes, you know, you're going to lose. And when you lose, you, you're in a, in a tough spot. You're in a tough predicament, given all the responsibilities you have. 
Yeah. And I don't know how radical I ever was, even when we were younger. Um, you know, I might have talked a big game, you know, a, 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 the anarchist game, no power for anyone. You know, the system is corrupt. The system has to be torn down and built back up again. You know, I don't know that I was ever too super radical. I, I went along with, and I ran with those with those clicks, but I don't know how much I really embraced it. I'm kind of like my disposition now is no, a certain amount of I'm willing to concede a certain amount of authority in the name of stability and predictability and and a peaceful existence where we're not all battling with each other. So I'm willing to compromise a little bit so that we're ensured that our society won't be a complete, you know, Mad Max right. you know, dystopia. And I think that's wise. I think that's mature to a certain extent. You just got to watch how far you take that, I think, you know, how, how much you use it as an excuse to not stand up for those things that are not acceptable. And, uh, you know, this leads me to something that when we're talking about, I know you want to talk about presidents a little bit and uh, uh, the presidential race a little bit. You think about a guy like Barack Obama, right, who he was pretty radical, I think, personal, personally in his, in his views. But when he was president, he was a pragmatist. He was a moderate. You know, he was not a liberal at all. And I think he did that because he, he is a pragmatist. He understood I, I have to work with different people. I have to compromise for the greater good, for, for stability, to try to go a little further down the road or not at all down the road with the policies and the philosophies that I, I hold dear. Uh, and I, there's a sort of wisdom to that. There's a sort of strength to that, too. Well, if you're if you're elected president, you've been hired to do a certain job. If you're not prepared to do that job, you shouldn't run for the office. And and part of that job is making sure that the engines of American government continue to continue to churn for better or worse. Right. We could sit here all day and talk about all of the ills of our political system. But the president's job is to make the decisions that he or she believes are in the absolute best interests of the majority of Americans, no, no matter what their political philosophy is. That's what the job that they've been hired to do. And I contend that any president that doesn't do that and doesn't make decisions that are in the best interest of the majority of Americans, I, I contend that they're negligent. So, you know, I think Obama was a good example of somebody who took the job very seriously and understood that regardless of his personal feelings about things, he was hired to do a specific job. And if you feel that the system needs to change and you become elected president, you might concede that you can change some things from within. But you also have to concede that there's a bunch of stuff that as president, it's not your job to radically change those things. Your job is to make sure that the decisions you make are the best decisions for Americans uh, uh, in terms of security, financially, um, uh, in terms of, of public safety. That's a president's job. I mean, that's why a lot of people are really good at maybe being congressmen or maybe being in NGOs or being outside of government and critiquing it. But they're probably not best suited for the job of president. Right. Which, you know, really brings with it a real serious moral conundrums, because as president, you have to do some things that are highly morally questionable. Um, Noam Chomsky said I watched an old interview with Noam Chomsky. I think. Um, Clinton might have been president at the time. Maybe George W. Bush was president. Maybe Obama was president. And Chomsky basically said under uh, under international law, under the Geneva Convention and under the standards that were set by the Nuremberg trials after World War Two, Chomsky said 
there isn't a post-war president who wouldn't be guilty of war crimes. Right, I saw that, yeah. Right? And he listed so, the reasons, yeah. And, yeah. and he listed the reasons. And well, they went, what they did was they went president by president. Yep. Chomsky gave examples for every president, what they did that was basically a war crime. And it really does make you stop in your tracks because – we do have international laws and we do have we do have criminal law for, for war criminals and our presidents, in fact, because they're so incredibly powerful and they act with impunity, are able to violate those laws with no with no consequences. And because and, we're America. Because, well, yeah, there's a lot that goes along with that, but we're big and powerful. Right. And when the, when you're that and, and it sets a bad precedent. I'm not saying it's right, but, you know, if a no, same right. another country, the president of another country did the same thing that wasn't one of our allies, we'd be saying, yeah, that's an international crime. We question it. But our own guy, he gets away with it. Yeah, we do it all the time. Double standard for sure. All the time. Yeah. Um, so and, and, and the problem. Oh, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to I was going to say. So it, it is it is a, a situation you know, life, politics, whatever, where all these different mindsets, all these different parts, you know, the rebel that questions, the manager that tries to keep everything steady and, and within the lines and so on, they, they all need to be there. And they all need to be functioning uh, as freely as possible so that we have a nice balance of perspectives. And then, I don't know, when the decision time comes and if there's a collectivism in the decision, it's more informed, more thoroughly analyzed, ideally, and then the best perhaps the best decision can be made. Though, is the best decision going to satisfy or serve everyone? No, no matter how hard you try, uh, it's a complicated situation. I don't think most of us want to even grapple with that reality. Well, again, being you, life, yeah, <laughs> you get you get you get tired. You, you you can't you can't bear the thought of every day being a battle against against the machine. It gets it gets exhausting. And sometimes we take the we take the path of least resistance just because we do get a little bit beaten down. Yeah. I mean, I'll be the first one to admit now that, you know, my life is comfortable. I can't deny that I work hard. I mean, I'm, my schedule is very busy, but my life is overall. It's really good. If I need to go to a doctor, I can go right to a doctor. I always have food in my belly. I've got a warm place to sleep. My family is safe. You know, I don't want revolution. I don't want to burn it all down. I don't want to see our country slip into civil war. That that's, that could only be bad for the vast, vast majority of people. I don't want any of that. I would rather we stay within the lines and we find compromise and we work on our problems together in a peaceful way rather than, you know, taking to the streets and burning it down. Well, how do you do that, though, when you're dealing with the present-day Republican Party here in the United States of America? Let's just start there. Right. Uh, Well, we see what happens now when a political party completely goes off the rails. If you have faith in democracy, I mean, ultimately, here's what democracy says. If everybody has a voice and the current leadership is not um, satisfactory, they have the power, you know, the electorate has the power to change that leadership. That's that's ideally that's what democracy is. In our democratic system, we have two main political parties. We've always depended on these political parties to act in a relatively rational way to um, draw up a party platform so you could see what this party stands for philosophically. What direction do they want our society to go in? And you could make a judgment based on the party platform, on its ideology, and especially 
on the candidates that it's supposed to vet before they ever get to, for example, a general election. It's the party's job to say, no, you person X, you can't represent our party. You don't reflect the values in our party platform. You don't reflect the will of the vast majority of members of our party. And we're not going to let you win a primary. We're not going to allow you to run under our party moniker because you don't represent our party. Well, you see what happens when a party loses its philosophical way. You end up with something like the modern Republican Party, which is really just a patchwork of radical right wing uh, interests and, and extremists and buffoons and, and buffoons. And and they're nominating like. When the Republican Party nominated Donald Trump, that was the point at which I said, I've always had major problems with the Republican Party. I think it was a corrupted party forever. But I really believe that when they nominated Trump, what they really said was, number one, we're not serious and we're not serious, serious about governance and leadership. And also, um, pretty much anything goes if you can appeal to the basest, most vile members of society, what Hillary Clinton called the deplorables. And there are millions of them that vote. If that's where the votes are, if that's where the votes are, we don't care if it reflects our party platform. As a matter of fact, we'll throw the party platform out. If it means we can win, we will do it. And it's the first time, really, that you see a major political party basically consider winning the ultimate. Winning is everything. And power is everything. And that's what you see in the modern Republican Party. And that's what you get. Look what that party has become. And you think it's uh, the first time we've seen this in modern day politics or like in the, in politics in the United States of America? Is that what you're saying? With the major parties, yeah. You can see fringe parties that are radical. They can afford to be that way. They, they, whether they admit it or not, they know that they're not going to be in a position of power. So their job is to express more more radical, more fringe ideas in the hopes of influencing the major parties. So the libertarians, whether they admit it or not, they know that they can take votes away from the Republicans if they tack to the right on any particular issue. The Green Party knows that it can take votes away from the Democrats if it tacks to the left on certain issues. So the major parties say, okay, what's appealing to all these Green voters and all these libertarian voters? Let's adopt some of those policies. In other words, let's chart our course a little bit more in their direction. We'll pick up some of those votes and that'll be beneficial to us. You never saw a major party just completely go off the rails like the Republican Party. And honestly, I would say, and if you're a Trump supporter, I would say just just being a reasonable person, I would say, just look at who's representing your party right now. Look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and Boebert and Matt Gaetz. Um, look at uh, Jim Jordan and, and Mitch McConnell do you can you really honestly say that those people are working for the benefit of the majority of Americans? It's you, mind can, you couldn't. No, it's mind boggling that people. I mean, and I, I believe it's a lot of those folks. The percentage of support they have within the Republican Party is plus seventy percent. You know, uh, the, the, that list that you mentioned—that's craziness to me. I, I, what kind of people are we talking about here? Well, this is and this is an example of how far. <clears throat> how far the Republican Party has sunk into the quagmire. Uh, Bob Menendez, one of our senators from New Jersey. Democrat. A Democrat. Was just, I think he was just indicted. Yep. Uh, uh, for, for all kinds of political corruption. Bribery, um, steering contracts to different, you know, to different entities that were, that were giving him, you know, that were giving him uh, 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 basically bribes in cash and gold. He had it stashed in his house. Now, now look. Here's the thing about Bob Menendez. 
if I lined up his voting record and his philosophy and his priorities, Bob Menendez and I are pretty close. Like he's a guy I would vote for, right? Because his politics are the politics I agree with. I agree with a lot of what he advocates. However, he's clearly corrupt. He's clearly corrupt. So unfortunately, even though I agree with him politically, and he's a guy who has gotten my vote in the past when I was a New Jersey resident, I'm willing to say, even though we agree politically, I like where he stands on the issues, that can't be, he can't be my representative. He can't be. I can't have that kind of corruption uh, in the halls of power. Supported. Just, be, just right. because he stands with me on X, Y, or Z issue. Right. It's easy, it's easy for, it's very easy for me as a Democrat to say, no, I'm sorry, you cannot be my candidate. You do are you, corrupt. That do, undermines- do you think- do you think that's Go going to be the case with many voters in Jersey now, or do you think they're going well, to stick well, with Well, my, my point is this. Democratic it's, voters. Yeah, my point is this. It's not hard for me to say as a Democrat, um, my policies are really important to me, and I really want people in office who, who, who basically um, agree with me on the major issues, but they're not the beginning and end all. If it means I have to have a corrupt person in there who's taken gold bullion and, and stashing it in his closet. No, I don't want that. And I am going to vote against that person no matter what. Why? Because corruption is wrong and it undermines the fabric of our democracy and it undermines all of the values that we all claim to stand for. I'm totally now, with you. Hard, I'm totally now, with hard, you. Yeah. Now, how hard is that to say? But, but look at the guy. But our Democrats. But let me ask you this, sir, William. Uh, we're talking about the Republicans and their supporters and the, and the party. In large part, are the Democrats any better? Do you think Bob Menendez will not get the support from New Jersey voters for another term and senator? Will they pressure him to resign or or, are they just the same as the Republicans? Because power is all they care about. That remains to be seen. But my point is this. When I see that level of corruption and he hasn't been proven guilty yet in the court of law. So I'm more than happy to say he deserves his day in court, of course. However, there are standards by which elected officials should be judged that aren't simply like we've lowered the bar to the lowest possible rung. If what we say is, oh, you were acquitted, right? Or it was a hung jury. No, you were, you were clearly doing things that, that elected officials cannot and should not do. You need to be out of office. Now, it's not hard for me to say that and believe that. And I'm going to follow through with that. I, I don't live in New Jersey anymore, but I wouldn't vote for Menendez. But contrast that with Donald Trump. Even if you love Donald Trump, you think he's a great guy, you thought he was a great president, you think he's a great leader, even if you love him, at what point do you say supporting this criminal undermines our democracy? And even though I agree with him politically on a lot of issues, I can't vote for that. He's clearly corrupt. He's clearly corrupt, even no matter what happens in the court of law. It's a it's a level of inappropriateness you can't have in an elected official. Republicans won't do that. Why? Because they... They're, they're, they have a cult mentality. Winning and power is everything, and they don't care who's their standard bearer. They do not care because all they care about is winning and power. But don't and they? They've really become corrupted. I agree with you, and I guess you're talking about the party as well as the the electorate, uh, the Republicans. Oh, absolutely. The Republican Party has shown over and over again that they are no longer serious about governing. 
They're shutting down the government. They're disenfranchising voters. They're stonewalling presidential Supreme Court nominees because the president is of the other party. They're not breaking laws a lot of times. What they're doing is they're breaking the norms and mores of the democratic systems, a lot of which are not codified. They're on the Supreme Court taking bribes from billionaires. Now, Thomas, now, yeah. now, yeah. Now, at what point do you say, as a as a member of the Republican Party, this level of corruption and inappropriate behavior, not yet technically criminal behavior, because you've got to be convicted first, but does it does it really have to get to that point, or right. are you willing to say, no, this person's clearly of questionable judgment. You shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. You shouldn't be representing a constituency. You clearly have ethical problems. Even if you weren't found guilty, we can't have that. We have to have some standards by which we judge. And the Republicans have simply said, no, we don't. No, we don't. If it's a recipe for victory and power, we want it. And we don't care what institutions we burn down in the process. Sir William, ladies and gentlemen, a very staunch advocate for the Republicans here on Troubadours and Rock Yeah. Uh, well, once upon, who would have thought that like Ronald Reagan and Don Regan and Dan Quayle would be looking good in comparison? They don't I mean, look how, good. How pathetic is that? They still don't look good. They but, still don't look no, good, right? But. No. But well, let's talk still. about let's talk about I hear you. Trump is uh, it's he's 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 I don't even know the word repugnant. There's, there's one. Um, but uh, let's let's talk about, you know, reductionism. You wanted to go there some. And I, I asked you, uh, what do you mean by that? And you, you really didn't clarify. Have you, you had a witty you had a witty response? Uh, yeah. I said, can you boil that down? Yeah, that was pretty yeah, funny. That's that's pretty funny. Uh, so do, do you uh, what do you want to go into that reductionism? What What's on your mind about reductionism? I had to stop the other day and look it up. I have to look up words in English all the time. It's embarrassing. I'm a language teacher and I always tell my students, don't get discouraged if you're if your Latin isn't what you want it to be, or your German, if you have to look things up, I said, I'm still learning English. So, so really, just, just keep, keep plugging away and you know, working on it. So I, I was considering myself a reductionist the other day because oftentimes uh, when discussing highly complex issues, I like to uh, boil them down to their more essential components just so I can sort of get a a grip on it Mm -hmm. so I can kind of get a better understanding of it. And I thought, oh, I'm a reductionist. Then I realized that, well, reductionist is usually said in a negative way. It's not a positive attribute. Right, oversimplifying. So what what a reductionist does is a reductionist would take a highly complicated issue, pull out a couple of aspects of it, and use that to define the issues. So for example, um, let's take, uh, let's take Hazleton, Pennsylvania. Once upon a time, a thriving town in the coal mining region of Pennsylvania, a lot of ethnic, um, a lot of ethnic families. there running local businesses, working in the mines, working in local industry. Um, and then because of a series of decisions made in government, economic decisions, uh, the economy starts to change. And all of a sudden, you know, whole sectors of the economy are no longer viable. For example, coal mining or the garment industry, things like that. And then towns like Hazleton end up becoming depressed and really kind of like backwards and 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 run down. And the Republican reductionist will say, because now in Hazleton, for example, you have a lot of uh, Hispanic families. And so the reductionist will say, well, look what happened when the white people moved out and the Hispanic people moved in that. Na- look at that neighborhood now. It all it went to crap. And that's not at all explaining the complex 
historical and economic issues that um, led to the economic decline of an area like Hazleton, Pennsylvania. It's Just also racist. It's also racist. Well, well, yeah, but that's but that's part of that's part of the reductionist game plan too. So we're gonna we're gonna explain a highly complicated and complex phenomenon phenomena in really overly simplistic terms. White people moved away. People of color moved in. Now the neighborhood has got more crime. Now it's more rundown. Well, actually, the op- opposite's happening. But but anyway, my that's point is true, still. That's true, actually. Yeah. My point is still. You've got to engage people and explain to them why their jobs went away and why they're making less money now and why things are more expensive now. And that involves a complicated understanding of capitalism, of international monetary policies, um, of energy policy. Like it's a it's a it's a dense and complex series of issues that lead to, for example, a neighborhood becoming depressed. Um, but the reductionist will say, oh, no, it's the people of color. Once they moved in, once they moved in, everything went to hell. No, right, that's crazy. not at all what happened. The jobs went away because capitalism demands that the business turn a profit. And if it doesn't turn a profit, the shareholders are allowed to sue the board of directors for making bad political decisions, which lowered the returns on their investment in that company. As a result, that factory that used to stand on the corner of Fifth and Allegheny employing 500 people in the neighborhood has moved to Mexico or it's moved to Southeast Asia. Now, why did it move? Or Alabama. The owners owners wanted to make more money. And so what happened was all the people who used to work there are unemployed and the people who could get out got out and moved to the suburbs, leaving a depressed neighborhood for lower income people to move into, oftentimes people of color. It's even more complicated than that. Oh, it surely is. And and my point is simply this. It wasn't white people good, people of color bad. It was way more complicated. But if you're a racist and you're going for the racist vote, you can easily frame a complicated argument in those reductionist terms and people who are not criti- good critical thinkers will go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And and those families that are moving in, uh, Im- immigrants oftentimes, uh, yep. they actually bolster a community that's falling apart because of, of, uh, of the economic problems because they, they open up uh, neighborhood stores and – you oh, know, yeah. they're industrious because they're trying to start a new life for themselves and their families. Immigrants yeah. do that all the time, you know. And, and you see it all over New Pennsylvania. It's a positive. You see it all the time. Right. Of course. Of course. So it's, it's, um, a, it's a misnomer in, in many, many ways, that sort of uh, tag on, on people that are new or immigrants or, or of color coming into a community. And also unions. You know, you talk about the union situation. That There's so much union stuff going on, thankfully. Uh, in 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 the country right now, with in the performance industry, within the auto uh, industry, and and uh, I I'm hearing that also hospitality workers. Uh, there's so many unions are up on the upswing, and and the the message is going to be, oh, this is going to make us less competitive on an international stage economically. This is not good for us. We you know we're gonna we're gonna hurt our our opportunity to have jobs in our communities. What do you speak? What what do you say to that mentality? Well, the first thing I say is in the in the in the entire history of humankind, there has only been one entity that stood up for the rights and dignity of the worker, and that's the union. There hasn't ever been any other entity that's been an advocate for and an, and, and allowed empowerment of a group 
like the union has for workers. Um, collective bargaining is the only thing that workers have to give them a fighting chance against management and the owners of the means of production. If they don't have that, they're simply individual cogs. They have zero power against the powerful owners and magnates, the owners of, of industry. So I say, look, if you want powerless, impotent, dissatisfied, underpaid workers, then do away with all unions and make your state a quote unquote right to work state, which, by the way, is a euphemism for anti-union. Yes, it is. And 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 what you'll have is you, you may have a compliant workforce. You're going to have a really unhappy workforce and you're going to have an exploited workforce. Is that really is that really what we want? What's amazing to me is I meet blue collar working class people all the time. And the level of animosity towards unions by non-union members, even by some union members, is really shocking to me. And it shows a basic lack of knowledge and understanding of the history of work in, in Western society, especially America. Yeah, there's no... And I, here's, no and here's, here's, you know what? Here's the easiest argument. I know you're, in, you're active in your union. Here's the easiest argument. Just say to people, let's go places where the unions aren't allowed. So let's take a look at the conditions of workers in North Korea. Let's look at the conditions of workers in Bangladesh, in, in, in Mumbai, uh, in Guatemala. You know, let's go to these places where there are no unions. Is that the kind of work environment you want? You want five-year-olds working in your factories? You want old ladies with heart disease, uh, you know, dragging, uh, what do I know, you know, making, making rugs in, 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 in Mumbai? Uh, just look at what people's lives are like where unions aren't allowed or unions have no power. Yeah, and that's why I mentioned Alabama before. I wasn't kidding. Right. You know, down south in this country, it's it, they're less um, likely to have a strong union climate uh, or option. So a lot of companies are moved from uh, uh, the Midwest down to the south you know in our right. own in our own country it happens too and and look at the work conditions there yeah look at the pay there uh it's it the, the thing that perplexes me the most and we're almost out of time we only have a few more minutes is and we've talked about this over and over and over again and it still perplexes me and i probably always will is how folks decent people i'm sure deep down get bamboozled to the point where they are supporting interests against their own best interests, their own family, their own communities. They get bamboozled over and over mm -hmm. again. I, mm -hmm. I, and it perplexes me. And I don't, mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, is it based on just lack of uh, sound understanding and education? Uh, is it based on uh, a hatred for a certain type of person? So you're, you let the hatred take over your reason? I'm not sure. What do you think? We got you. Know what I've talked about. What have I told? I've told you this in the past. I'm still waiting for somebody to disprove my hypothesis or my theory. If you vote Republican, you are at least one of three things, maybe a combination, maybe all three. But if you vote Republican, you are at least one of these things, and I can prove it every time. You are either dumb. Let's say you're a blue collar working person and you're voting Republican. You're dumb because they're not going to make decisions in your best economic interest. No matter what you think about abortion or gun rights or any of that stuff, they're using those wedge issues to get your vote so they can screw you economically. So if you vote Republican, you're either dumb, you're either mean. And there's a lot of nastiness coming from the Republican Party now to the point where one even thinks like maybe the cruelty is the point. 
maybe the cruelty is what turns these people on. And like the crueler you can be towards uh, uh, pregnant women or the crueler you can be to undocumented immigrants simply trying to find a better life for themselves, the crueler you can enact policy, uh, uh, the, the, the better it is. So you're either mean, dumb or rich. So if you vote Republican, you're at least one of those things. You could be all three but you're at least one of them. And I contend that nobody can show me an example of a Republican voter that isn't one of those things. I hear you. I think that is a, a, a wonderful uh, sort of way to analyze uh, what makes someone who votes for Republican tick. But there's a flaw because I'm pretty dumb and I'm also pretty mean. I'm not rich, but I don't vote Republican. You're not mean, though. You could joke around, but you're not mean. You're not cruel to your fellow man. You're not looking for politics that punish people. You're not looking to take away the rights of a woman over her body. You're not looking to you're not looking to uh, uh, send a disproportionate amount of people of color to the electric chair. You're not mean. So I say, no, you're not mean and you're not dumb and you're not rich. I'm definitely not rich. That's for sure. Yeah, the other two are debatable. Dumb, but you're not. But you're not mean or dumb. Well, thank you for having that kind of faith in me, Sir William. <laughs> uh, I know you pretty well. I know. You, but listen. But but in all seriousness, I've begged people. I've begged people. Please show me an example of a Republican voter who's not one of those. At least, right? That's not one of those, and uh, nobody can do it. I would love to be proven wrong. I would love to be proven wrong, but I haven't yet. I don't think you will. Well, that's just about it for this. Go around. We'll be talking with you again because you are part of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. You're part of the DNA, I'm happy to say. Thank you for taking time out of uh, your day. You're, you're uh, just finishing educating young people, and those young people in that school district are very lucky, and so are we. I look forward to our next time talking with you. Uh, okay, I thought we were going to talk about the rule changes in Major League Baseball, but, you know. That's Bruno okay. Milo's turf. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Take care, Fratello. All right, EW. See you soon. Ciao. Ciao.
Butcher and his wife. Once upon a time, there was a butcher, and this butcher was not the happiest of fellows. Every day he would bid his wife goodbye and go off to work. He now worked at the counter of a large store, part of a chain of superstores. At one time he had his own shop, but for various reasons bad luck, bad accounting, and occasionally bad meat. He lost the shop, and with it, his dream. His wife, who used to work side by side with him at the shop, had to find another job as well. So she became a customer service representative for a conglomerate and answered calls from home. Every day, the butcher dealt with demanding customers. I want the salami sliced thin, one would say. No, thinner. And one surly man would ask, in a menacing tone, if the pastrami was lean. And another would shriek if the cooper cheese wasn't sliced just so. Meanwhile, the butcher's wife coped with equally demanding customers on the phone. At the end of the day, they ate their dinners in silence, watched reality shows on TV, and collapsed into bed. One day, when the butcher entered the cooler behind the counter... He heard a strange noise, not a shout or a murmur, more of a sigh. The butcher was startled but collected himself and began to search the shelves. The salami, the bologna, the chicken, the pork, the sausage, all were silent. Then, just as he was about to leave the cooler and account for the sound as stress, a nice piece of beef whispered, Hey, buddy, I got a secret for you. The butcher jumped back and closed the cooler door. But what? The butcher stammered. What secret? About your wife, the meat said. My wife? Yeah, butcher, your wife. What about her? First, you have to make a promise to me. Why? Because that's the way it's done. Okay, what is it? Don't sell me. I don't want to be eaten. What difference does it make? You're already, you know, 
dead, no longer a cow. Yeah, I know, Einstein. I got my reasons. All right, I promise. What's the secret? Your wife's having an affair with the super of your apartment building. What? How do you know? I get around. Uh, well, actually, I never leave the cooler. But I hear things. I'm magical meat. I'm talking to you, aren't I? The butcher was stunned. How could his wife deceive him? How could he be so blind? He started to sob. Hey, the meat said. Pull yourself together. You got customers. And indeed he did. An angry crowd lined up at the counter and clamored for service. It was a very long day for the butcher. That night, the butcher said nothing to his wife about the talking meat. He gave her sidelong glances and sighed. She seemed preoccupied and didn't notice his odd behavior. The next day, the butcher, torn between, between jealousy and disbelief, entered the cooler and confronted the meat. My wife is not cheating on me, he yelled. Listen, do you really know anyone? The meat replied calmly. Faced with this truism, the ultimate inscrutability of everyone, including ourselves, the butcher told his manager that he wasn't feeling well and raced home, hoping and dreading to catch his wife in the act of betrayal. There, at the kitchen table, sat the super and the butcher's wife. The super was crying, and the wife was consoling him. Arnold, the super's longtime partner, had left him for a performer from the Disney on Ice tour, and the super was inconsolable. The butcher was both shocked, how did he not know about Arnold, and relieved, his wife was not cheating on him. He mumbled that he had forgotten something, ran to the bedroom, and then scampered out of the apartment, leaving his puzzled wife and the still-weeping super. That night, the couple dined on the lying, malicious, yet tender meat, with a side of mashed potatoes and asparagus, and the butcher and his wife lived occasionally happy ever after. Loving you is not a choice, it's who I am. Loving you is not a choice, and not much reason to rejoice. But it gives me purpose, gives me voice to say to the world, this is one
October Sun The man-made world, the white man-made world, the human-made world, melanin, the natural world, gelatin, the communities, the government, the religions, the people are all the same, the people are not all the same, the way we live, the way we breathe, the gender, the sex, the age, the aging, the water, the sun. I feel like I am sick. There are many who are smiling. The way it is. I smell weed. I smell garbage. Like a bomb in harmony, summer heat My back is sticking to me to the sea Bare feet, tank top, and shorts is all you need But summer breeze, I'm feeling kind of fine I'm rolling with my shorty all the time Wine and grind, lovely, shake your behind Cinnamon skin be bringing sin to my mind But whether or not the weather's hot Or the weather's cold, I'm up and I like a blanket With my whole soul so that she can feel me like Coca-Cola I'm the whoa, whoa, sweet thing My girl Lollipop, she going mad crops She rolling herbs every day at about four o'clock Tick-tock, strike the hammer while the iron's hot Oh girl, what you got cooking in the pot? Say Mary, Mary, quite contrary How does your garden grow? Hydroponic or does it grow naturally slow? Ganja babe, my sweet ganja babe I love the way you love me and the way you're misbehaving Ganja babe, my sweet ganja babe Come wake my body, I'll take my mind away yeah. Everybody get down and do the boogaloo Just like the cover of I Want You Ooh, Look what you're gonna do What you're gonna do when the rent comes due Round up the posse and call up the crew Five bucks at the door and you bring your own booze Call your neighbors cause they can come And there you have it Episode 543 Three of Troubadours and Rockin' Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Surf William, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, 
and these musical artists. Thelonious Monk, Bob Marley and the Wailers, Jimmy Buffett, Barbara Cook, Michael Franti, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourself.